I want to get you warmed up today with some participation. And no, you don't have to get off your couch or out of your lazy boy chair. Uh, but I want to ask you a series of questions about what are your favorite kind of things. And so uh, if you're at home with your family, sitting around the living room or around your kitchen table, feel free to, to share those answers. Or if you're uh, watching on Facebook or YouTube and, and you want to uh, respond in the comment section, go ahead and do that too. So I'll start you off with an easy one. Uh, what's your favorite ice cream? Now, if I was at home, I would hear black cherry for sure. Uh, some superhero, uh, maybe some birthday cake, and then for sure, uh, some sorbet. Uh, what's your favorite snack food? That's easy. It's the food your mom tells you you're not supposed to have very often. Uh, what's your favorite team? What's your favorite hockey team? I feel like I can hear the Leaf fans <laughs> shouting in the back of my mind. Uh, and I'm sorry if you find that a cruel question right now without sports. And if I hurt your heart, my apologies. What's your favorite thing to do outside? And you might be telling me not going outside. That's not a thing. What is your favorite thing to do outside? Maybe mow the lawn. Who is your favorite musician or your favorite athlete, favorite author, someone that you like to follow and pay close attention to? When you were a kid, who was your favorite teacher or your favorite coach? What about your favorite classmate? Does that feel a little bit uncomfortable maybe to answer? Um, we have a lot of favorite things, your favorite people, favorite teams, and, and to state them out loud is usually fairly innocent and doesn't really have consequences. I mean, I can say that my favorite people are my family. But if I said, my favorite daughter is, or my favorite sister is. Now that feels somewhat dangerous and, and even possibly traumatic. Why does talking about favoritism feel different when we're talking about foods and teams and hobbies compared to people? I wonder, have you ever been showed favoritism? Maybe a boss who sends you extra incentives, gives you the first pick of the jobs, Maybe you've had a coach or a teacher who picks you first all the time and uh, verbalizes their approval to you for your skills or different things that you're doing. Maybe a neighbor or a family member who clearly liked you over your big brother and gave you kind of extra treats at holidays. It feels pretty good, hey, to be favored. Have you ever not been favored by someone? Maybe a boss who gave you the worst jobs um, who overlooked you for promotions, spoke down to you in front of other people. And maybe a coach or a teacher who never picked you, made, made it clear that you were not their priority because you weren't the superstar on the team or in the class. Maybe a family member or a neighbor who gave you the last pick or your gift was loosely thrown together and really looked nothing like everyone else's. It feels pretty rotten. Usually, if someone is showing favoritism to other people, you, you get left feeling discouraged and dishonored, worthless, uh, unappreciated, and completely defeated. Well, over the last couple of weeks, we've been on a journey to the corner of faith and life in a sermon series on the book of James. And the theme of James is teaching believers how to thrive in their relationship with Jesus and with those around them. And today, we're going to look at chapter 2. I'm talking about favoritism and its serious consequences to those who experience it and to those who give it, actually, both. 
And then in the second half of the chapter, how our faith in our actions combine, create the evidence of our faith in making it seem alive and active. Well, the dictionary defines favoritism as the practice of giving unfair preferential treatment to one person or a group of people at the expense of another. James talks about this very thing, favoritism, and how it had crept into the church. So if you have a Bible uh, with me, uh, with you today, and you want to follow along with me, we're going to be reading in James chapter 2, but the uh, scripture passages will also appear on the screen. And I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation today. We're going to start in verse 1. My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? For example, Suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry and another person who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there or, or else sit on the floor. Well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Listen to me. Dear brothers and sisters, hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those he loved? You may remember back in Galatians that Paul was teaching a new way, Jesus' way, the way that he showed love to everyone, the way that he was trying to break down the classes that were in society. Jesus' new way showed no partiality. He was working to break down the walls that divided humanity. This was really controversial because the ancient world was separated by a class, and that was just common. It it was almost normal. I was reading this week in the Enduring Word Commentary, and it says it this way. James wrote to a very partial age, filled with prejudice and hatred based on class, ethnicity, nationality, religious background, and gender. In the ancient world, people people were routinely and permanently categorized because they were Jew or Greek, slave or free, rich or poor, Greek or barbarian, male or female, or whatever. James clearly asks the question, how can you claim to have faith in Jesus if you favor people over others? He's asking people to search their hearts. And then gives the example of a rich and a poor person coming into the church. Well, what would we do here at Waynefleet? And it might be hard to imagine because we're not actually here together in the building. But if James was here right now, perhaps uh, the story would be something like this. You're standing in the lobby of the church. And if you've never been here, just imagine a big open lobby stairs down to a set of doors. And open the the doors open, and here come in two people. On the left-hand side is someone dressed with very stylish clothing. They have really smart shoes on. You can tell that they are paying attention to the trends. They've clearly showered, and their hair is well, well manicured. Do you manicure hair? Maybe just nails. Their hair was really well done. And next, on the other side, on the right-hand door opens, and someone comes in looking pretty disheveled. Their hair is greasy and and windblown. Their clothing is torn uh, and very well worn. You can tell they've been wearing them for years. And you look at both of them as they come up the stairs and you have a decision about who you will greet first and bring in 
to the sanctuary with you. As our real life intersects with our faith, how will we respond? Who, who really needs us first? Now, you could argue with me that we don't know their hearts, and so that's hard to tell. And I, I agree. But Jesus is looking at their heart first, not their outward appearance, not how they're walking in. And as we are journeying to become more like Jesus as Christ followers, we need to learn to value people like Jesus does. And that's what James is teaching here. Oftentimes, our selfish motives drive our desire and our actions to favor a rich person. You know, what could we gain from a relationship with them? Uh, maybe power, maybe influence, maybe better connections. Maybe they'll uh, loan us some of their many things that they have. And often, maybe not without processing it totally, you know, we wonder what would a per could a poor person give us in return? How could we benefit from having them in our lives? Can you see that that kind of thinking is twisted? And so, so wrong. James called it being guided by evil motives. Their hearts and ours aren't pure when we favor someone over another. Well, let's jump down to verse 8, chapter, uh, verses 8 to 11, and read about the consequences to ourselves if we are showing favoritism. There certainly are consequences to those who we show favoritism to. Can you imagine what it felt like to be the poor person that entered into the congregation that James was talking about? One of the versions actually says, you could sit at my feet. Can you imagine what it would feel like to be treated like that? But what are the consequences to us when we uh, treat people like that? Verses 8 to 11 kind of uh, express that for us. Yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the royal law as found in the scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. You are guilty of breaking the law. For the person who keeps all the laws except one is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. For the same God who said, you must not commit adultery, also said, you must not murder. So if you murder someone but do not commit adultery, you have still broken the law. Notice that the example is showing favoritism as law-breaking, as sinful behavior, talked alongside of adultery and murder. And just like that verse 10 says, I'm just as guilty as someone who has broken every law, even if I've broken one. We can carry that line of thinking to say, well, if I haven't committed adultery, if I haven't committed adultery, but I've shown favoritism, I've broken the law, and I'm just as guilty as the person who has shown who has committed adultery. That may feel uncomfortable and harsh, but James is trying to help us see how Jesus does. Oftentimes, I am prone to justifying my sin, and I don't know if you are maybe like me in this way. You know, I think, well, my little sin is, is, you know, nothing or not much when I compare it to somebody else's great big sin. But that's not what Jesus is teaching. And that's not what James is showing us here in this passage. You know, as we journey towards the corner of life and faith intersecting, which way will we turn? What happens when those things come together? 
Well, the second half of James chapter two breaks down another issue for us when we consider our faith and our life um, intersecting. How do our how does our faith and our deeds and deeds is just another word for actions? How should they align? How do, how should they work together? So we're going to uh, start reading in verse fourteen. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? What uh, can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say to them, goodbye, have a good day, stay warm, eat well, but you don't give them any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Now, someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. Now, it would be crazy to do this, but I want you to imagine for a minute that we told people to come to the church for the food hub. Here, come here if you have need. And when they arrived and they would pull under the carport, our volunteers would go outside and they would stand beside their vehicle and they would pray earnestly that someone would bring that family food. And then they would send them on their way. Can you imagine? Our minds, it, it, our minds can't even imagine doing that to someone because we as a, as a church understand that, the, that the, our faith is aligned with our actions. Christ's followers are called to do those things working together. Just like verse 18 says, we show our faith in Jesus through our loving actions to others. If our words are right and proper, you know, saying all the right things, but aren't accompanied by caring, loving action, do we even have faith? Verse 17 says our faith is dead if it isn't accompanied by action. The message version says it this way, and I love the, how the language sounds. Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense? Let's put that into our food hub example. Isn't it obvious that telling someone we'll pray that somebody else brings them food instead of giving them food ourselves is outrageous nonsense? As Christ followers, we want a living, thriving faith, not a dead, useless faith like verse 17 suggests. In Jesus, our faith and our actions align and they become a powerful force for showing Jesus' love to the world around us. And we've seen a lot of examples of that. Uh, lately, especially in the in the world we're living in today. Well, James finishes the chapter with two Old Testament examples, first Abraham and then Rahab. Abraham expressed his faith in God through obedience as he offered his son Isaac on the altar. Verse 22 said, you see his faith, Abraham's faith, and Abraham's actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. We consider right, we are considered righteous or upright, virtuous by what we do, not just by our faith on its own. Rahab is another example. Uh, Rahab lived in the wall of Jericho. 
and she was a prostitute. Uh, her lifestyle was not moral as we would consider appropriate. But verse 25 calls her righteous because she had both faith in God and action. She hid the Israelite spies and saved them from being captured uh, in when uh, the Israelites came, uh, when the city of Jericho, uh, their people were looking for them. It's not good enough to say all the nice, right things and then treat people or groups of people with disrespect, favoritism, or ignorance. And I would say most people know that. People who are not familiar with faith know that it isn't nice to do that or isn't right to do that. As Christians, we are called to be very careful about how those things work together. And unfortunately, I think some people who use God talk, naming themselves Christians, even doing the church thing on Sundays, seem to sometimes have a dead faith when it comes to action or inaction. You may have heard the expression, actions speak louder than words. And often the church has tried to use really loud words to be influential in the world. And sadly, our lack of action, or maybe poor actions, have spoken louder than our words. As Christ followers, we have the opportunity to have a thriving faith that is alive and that shows the world around us who Jesus is and how much he loves them. How has your faith looked this week? What actions come to mind as I'm talking? Ways that you have shown your faith in action. Maybe God's prompting you. Remember when you did this? You know, remember, remember this that happened. Remember when you went out and got groceries for, for your neighbor that you don't really actually even know and this is sort of a brand new relationship that you're starting. Your faith in action. Maybe you need to stop as, as individuals or as families and just, and just sort of try and answer this question or, or finish this phrase. My faith in action looks like, or as a family, you could say our faith in action looks like this. Maybe as I talked earlier in the first half of the message, your faith is being expressed or demonstrated in how you treat people with equality, without partiality, without showing favoritism. And maybe that's easy for you, or, or maybe that's, a, that's been a struggle for you as you favor different groups or different people. Maybe there's a relationship that um, God is just prompting you to re-examine. God is so gracious to us. We're on this journey of faith to become more like Jesus. And we are not going to be perfect at it. But as we continue to be more like him, as we journey in our relationship to become more like Jesus, we, it will become easier. It will become, um, as I look at uh, faithful uh, people who have been serving the Lord for years, it will become more second nature. And so when we mess up and we do treat people wrong, or we, uh, we do show favoritism, or, or we say things, but our actions do not add up to what we're saying, we can ask God to forgive us. And he is so gracious to offer us forgiveness and to offer us a second chance to try again. Well, what is God telling you as you stand at this intersection, as you stand at the corner of life and faith? What is God talking to you about today? Let's pray together. God, you are gracious to us as we journey with you, as we journey to become more like you. Thank you for the encouragement that we receive from James. Thank you for the um, the examples and, and showing us how to live out a vibrant faith 
how to show the people around us um, that your love is living in us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us in our relationships, as in our um, maybe in our workplaces or, or as we're in uh, classrooms or on teams and groups of people where it's so easy to show favoritism to someone who can benefit us or, or someone who we think uh, can benefit us. Uh, God, I just pray that you would help us to see people with your eyes, that you would help us to see everyone the way you do. And God, would you give us your heart? Would you give us your mind as we look at people, as we talk to people, as we treat people? And God, would that treatment of others be an example of your love living in us? And God, as we go throughout our weeks and they look so different than they did even three months ago, as we go throughout our weeks, would you give us wisdom that not only would the words that are coming out of our mouth be from you, but our actions would match up, our actions would align and that our faith would be demonstrated so clearly to those around us because of our actions. And so God, I pray that you would help us to do those things. And God, when we mess up, thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for second chances. Thank you for giving us the courage to try again. And I pray that you would be with each one as they go out this week. Give them opportunities to express their faith in action. And I pray that your name would be glorified and honored as we do these things. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.